Ezekiel 5, 1-12 Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to all Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the centre of the nations, with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, parents will eat their children, and children will eat their parents. I will inflict punishment on you, and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls, and a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. Well, it was September 5, 2003, that American magician and illusionist David Blaine stepped into a transparent plexiglass box on the south bank of the Thames, uh, near Tower Bridge in London, And he began an endurance stunt, which would last for 44 days. He was locked in there in this seven by three foot box uh, with uh, no food, uh, only four and a half litres of water each day to sustain him. Uh, And by the time he came out, he was some 25 kilos lighter. I don't know if you remember this at the time, uh, it was certainly got a lot more press in uh, the UK than it did here, I think. But an estimated 250,000 people went to see him in person, went to view him sitting in this box, uh, with millions more tuning in to uh, what was like a live stream. I think it was slightly less sophisticated, but it was broadcast on television 24 hours a day from a camera that was mounted inside this box. But what was the point of it all? Uh, well, even after he came out, that was a little bit hard to figure out. Uh, David claimed that he wanted to find beauty in suffering. Uh, he wanted to demonstrate that the power of the spirit is greater than the power of the flesh. Uh, he also happened to earn, by some estimates, around half a million pounds for what he did. So that might be part of the answer, or perhaps most of the answer. Uh, but he certainly attracted a lot of attention through this piece of performance art. 
And street theatre and public stunts like this have long been used to grab people's attention. Uh, sometimes it's just purely for uh, entertainment, um, like buskers down at Sikiki, uh, although you could argue variously about how entertaining they are. Uh, but some uh, public stunts and, and street performance has a much more political edge to it as well. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, these people. Um, I've spotted them down at uh, the uh, Pitt Street Mall a couple of times. They're vegan activists uh, and they are forming there what they refer to as a truth cube. Uh, but it's really uh, designed to grab people's attention and to bring people's attention to issues around animal cruelty in food production. Now, Ezekiel is perhaps the world's first recorded street theatre performer. Um, God asks Ezekiel to perform a, a series of a strange activities to convey his message to the people of Israel. And his performances are designed to both grab people's attention but also to inform. Uh, he has these sort of enacted metaphors which are a sign to Israel. Ezekiel is a pretty odd prophet, and if you've read much of the book, uh, you'll know that is the case. In fact, some people have gone so far as to suggest that Ezekiel is suffering from some form of mental illness. Uh, now, I don't think that's the case. He's really only carrying out the things that God asked him to do, but they are pretty bizarre. Why is God asking him to do these things? Well, um, Different people have been about it, but I think one of the reasons is that God's people got a pretty well-established history of ignoring the messengers God sends to them. Uh, so perhaps there's method in at times what looks like a bit of madness. Now we saw last week that uh, Ezekiel is in Babylon. Uh, he was sent there uh, at the end of um, the the first wave of um, Babylon's war against Jerusalem when they conquered the city and they took a whole bunch of captives with them back to Babylon. And about five years into his captivity, along with the rest of Israel, uh, God makes himself known to Ezekiel and calls him to be a prophet. Ezekiel is about 30 years of age at the time. And Ezekiel is going to be God's mouthpiece to the exiles who are living in Babylon. But he's a rather unusual mouthpiece. Um, so go to chapter 4, uh, verse 1, if you've got it. I'll put the words up on the screen as well. Um, and this is sort of how the, the street theatre begins for Ezekiel and for the people of Israel. God says, Now, son of man, that's God's way of referring to Ezekiel throughout the book, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, Build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. And take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. There will be a sign. Uh, this will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. So Ezekiel is, is asked by God to make this clay city uh, of Jerusalem, to create a, a kind of a replica, a model, and then to 
build siege works against it, as though the city is under siege and under attack. I imagine as he went through this process, it would have looked a little bit like a man playing with his train set uh, or maybe uh, playing with his Lego, um, which used to be uncool until Lego Masters came along. Actually, it's still pretty nerdy, but it's now more permissible. Then Ezekiel is told that he has to lie down on one side and he's going to have to do this for over a year, 390 days, um, and this is to represent each day of Israel's sin. And then we read further in that he's got to do it on the other side for 40 days, representing a year uh, of Judah's sin. It's kind of very odd and strange behaviour and and not a lot of fun for Ezekiel, I would imagine. And then in chapter 5 we get that event we had read for us by Holly earlier, um, where Ezekiel's asked to cut his hair off using uh, a a sword as a razor, uh, and then he's to take the hair and divide it into these three portions. Uh, One third he's to burn inside his little clay city, another third he's to sort of spread around and strike that with a sword, and then another third is to be scattered to the wind. So what's all this odd behaviour about? Well, it is no great mystery because God tells Ezekiel why and to explain to the people what he's doing. God says he's coming in judgment on the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians are going to lay siege to the city and this time it's going to be destroyed. And so the the haircutting thing, for example, is a representation of the people. And you see the explanation for that in verse 12 of chapter 5. God says, a third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword. The city of Jerusalem is going to come under attack. And the people inside it are going to suffer greatly. They will die from starvation and disease. Others will die in battle defending the city. And the rest are going to be scattered. Ezekiel predicts in great detail what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. But more importantly, he explains why, why these events are going to take place. Uh, We're covering 21 chapters in Ezekiel today. Uh, It'll be broad brush strokes. strokes. I I don't know if that's uh, a comfort to you or you'd rather get in, be here for the rest of the day. Uh, But... To summarise what the 21 chapters are about, they're really about the same thing. It's God's case against his own people. It's God's case against Israel. See, unlike some of the other prophets who come along, Ezekiel isn't sent in order to call the people back to repentance, to call on them to change their ways in order to avert the disaster that's coming upon them. No, Ezekiel is there to bear witness to God. He's to read the sentence to explain why this judgment is coming. It's a little bit like the sentencing remarks that a magistrate will read when they're giving their sentence to someone who's been found guilty. The judge there lays out all the reasons why they're giving the sentence that they are. And that's kind of what we've got here in these chapters. God spells out his case against the people and the verdict is already in. But that doesn't make it easy reading, does it? I mean, Israel has completely lost their way. 
As we read through, we see that they turn their backs on God. They've turned their backs on his laws. They're openly worshipping idols and the gods of the nations around them. And they've even turned on each other. We see the powerful preying on the weak and the vulnerable within their own communities. Violence, corruption and injustice are rife. Now I've sampled just a few verses to give you a feel for what we find in these chapters. Um, So here's the first one, Ezekiel 5. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the centre of the nations, with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. A couple more for you, Ezekiel 22. See how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood? In you they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you they have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and desecrated my Sabbaths. And then Ezekiel 7. The end is now upon you. I will unleash my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. Page after page after page is like this. As God details their sin, their idolatry, as he explains why he's going to bring his wrath upon them. Perhaps the saddest and the most shocking scene of all is found in Ezekiel chapters 8 through to 11, where Ezekiel's taken back to the city he grew up in. He's taken back there by God. God sort of transports Ezekiel there in, in a vision a bit like a kind of divine video link, I suppose. And what he sees in the city is shocking. He sees the people of Jerusalem who have completely given themselves over to the worship of idols and their own sins. He sees idols everywhere, people worshipping animal motifs that have been scrawled on the wall. He sees some women worshipping a fertility god of the Mesopotamians, the, uh, the Tammuz god, And when he's brought right into the very heart of the city, into the very temple of God, this is what he sees. Chapter 8, verse 16. It says, He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, or bowing down to the sun in the east. There in the very temple of God, the people are worshipping the sun. God describes over and over again the things that they're seeing as detestable. That's how he feels about it. God says they've defiled his sanctuary. And because of that, he says he's not going to dwell with these people any longer. God says he is leaving. And that's what Ezekiel sees next. We get a description of the glory of God, that same image that was back there in chapter 1 that Luke looked at last week, the image with the creatures and the wheels and the eyes on the wings, uh, that image appears again in these chapters. And Ezekiel sees that image and the glory of God first leave the temple sanctuary and then leave the temple precinct altogether and depart the city of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel 10 verse 18 puts it this way. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. 
While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was on them. It's kind of a, a sad and tragic reversal of what took place when Solomon first commissioned this temple uh, all the way back in 1 Kings. On that occasion, the glory of God filled the temple in a cloud. And here we see that same cloud, that same glory of God departing as God abandons his disobedient people. Israel, and it's taken them several hundred years, but they have finally driven God out of the temple, out of the holy city of Jerusalem, all in preparation for the judgment and the ultimate destruction of this place. Ezekiel's words and his odd performances, they're all there to testify to the Israelites and indeed to the nations around them that what is about to happen is not going to happen because Babylon's gods are somehow more powerful than Israel's God, as many people would have interpreted the events. These things are going to happen because Israel's God, the one and only God, is going to use Babylon as his instrument of judgment on his own people. He's judging them for their betrayal of him, for their immorality, for their pride, for their oppression of the vulnerable. And while Ezekiel's message is about what's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem, it's primarily a message for the community of exiles that Ezekiel is a part of, those already living in Babylon. It's a message for them and for their children who will one day return to the city of Jerusalem when God restores it. God wants them to learn the lessons from this generation to understand why God sent this disaster on his people so that they won't repeat the mistakes of their ancestors. Ezekiel's message is a message of warning. It is a warning for them, but so too ought it to be a warning for us that we ought not to treat God like a fool as they did. See, Israel had taken God for granted. They'd ignored his commands. They'd ignored his numerous warnings. But we can so often do the same, can't we? I wonder whether God's commands for you are sometime a bit like well-meaning advice from your grandma. You know, given with the best of intentions, but maybe a little old-fashioned, not terribly realistic for you to live by in a changing world. Maybe for you, your relationship with God has become a little compromised. You own that title, that tag of being a Christian, but how you live doesn't really bear that out. The things that you look to for your contentment and your security are anywhere but God. We might even call them idols. That is the things that you trust in, the things that you live for, the things that you offer yourself to. Maybe your work or your pleasures, your status in the eyes of other people, even your own leisure. Perhaps for you it's all about your children's opportunities and education 
That's the immovable block around which everything else must revolve. It's worth realising that the people in Jerusalem, they hadn't abandoned God entirely. They were just trying to have it a bit both ways. They wanted a bit of Yahweh and they wanted a bit of idol worship alongside it. They still had their priests, they offered up their sacrifices, they went through all the temple rituals, but they were happy to mix all of that up with a little bit of sun god worship too. God won't be treated like a fool. He demands that his people listen to him and live lives that are exclusively devoted to him. God will not tolerate playing second fiddle to anything else in your life. He can't be bargained with when it comes to the place that he demands to have as Lord of your life. Don't think you can buy him off with a bit of religious piety, turning up to church occasionally or even every week. If you want to call him Lord, have him as your Lord. That means listening to him, obeying him, living for him. Don't treat God like a fool. Remember who you're dealing with, your creator and your judge. And Ezekiel reminds us that his judgment is no idle threat. I think when we think about the judgment of God, it can be both the most comforting and the most terrifying thing that we can contemplate. A great comfort to know that there is a just judge that sees everything, that has the power to bring people to account, that he'll bring his perfect knowledge and his perfect wisdom to bear. That's a great comfort. But equally terrifying, isn't it? That this judge knows me, knows my heart, my every action, my hidden motives, the idols I cherish, and both my public and my secret sins are known to him. I'll answer to him, as will you, and if that doesn't fill you with a bit of terror, well, you're either far more righteous than me or you've just gotten a lot better at justifying your own behaviour. Even in the midst of all the warnings and the judgments that we find in the book of Ezekiel, there is a wonderful reminder of God's unrelenting patience, his love and his commitment to his people. We get these wonderful words of hope uh, in chapter 11. God says, this is right after he's left the temple, therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back to the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will know my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. I think here we see this tension within God exposed. This tension between his holy and just opposition to sin and his unrelenting love and compassion for his people. 
See, ultimately God is going to preserve a remnant within Israel. He's going to restore them. But even more than that, Ezekiel here speaks of a time when God will do something new, when God will give his people a new undivided heart. He will place a new spirit within them so that they can be faithful to him. It's a promise that we won't see ultimately fulfilled until Jesus comes. Siri. I'm going to have to hide her away. It's a promise we won't see ultimately fulfilled until Jesus comes. A promise that we, this side of the cross, are the beneficiaries of as those who've been given new life, who've been given the very spirit of God to live within us. But we're going to be thinking more about those things as we come to the latter chapters of the book of Ezekiel as he expands on these ideas. Uh, So we'll leave that there for now. But what I did want us to think about for a little bit is this glad that many of us find with the idea of God's judgment that it is somehow incompatible with the notion of God's love. And I think some people try and resolve that tension by downplaying one aspect of God's character in favour of the other. But I think when we do that, we end up with a not only a warped, but a rather unsatisfying picture of God. You either end up with a brood of a God who's just waiting to punish you whenever you step out of line, or you've got a kind of well-meaning dolt who's very kind, but when it comes to dealing with evil, when it comes to bringing justice, he's just a bit sad about it all. He either isn't interested or able to do anything about it. But none of those kind of caricatures, cardboard cutouts, do justice to the God of the Bible. There is a genuine tension between God's hatred of sin and his love for sinful people. And it's a tension in the pages of the Bible that only gets resolved through Jesus. I want to show you a verse from Romans chapter 3. You may be very familiar with it. Um, But it shows us how the cross resolves this dilemma. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God is just. He can't just wink at sin. He will not ignore it. God will oppose what is evil. He will always be righteous and just. And these verses in Romans remind us that we're all sinners. And because of that, we're all facing and deserving of God's judgment. That there is no hope for us. Outside, that is, of the grace of God through Jesus. Because of that, God can both be just and the one who justifies people. So in his love, God sends his own son into the world to suffer in our place. God himself absorbs the pain and the punishment for our wrongdoing within himself. And so on the cross, we see sin dealt with justly. Jesus takes on both 
our sin and the just punishment of God. And then God declares us in him justified, forgiven, right with him. This is how God resolves this tension between his love and his judgment. Both are perfectly expressed through the cross of Jesus. His perfect love for sinful, broken, obstinate people means his judgment falls on his own son who, who chooses to take our place. At the cross, God's love and judgment meet. And that is where that tension is ultimately resolved. And so because of that, we don't need to pretend that we are something that we're not in the hope perhaps that we might convince God of it too. We don't need to ignore our sin. We don't need to pretend that it doesn't matter. We don't need to make out as though God really shouldn't mind. And we don't need to try and fool ourselves into thinking that we can fool God too. We don't need to try and reduce God to some kind of big toothless teddy bear who would never dream of punishing anyone. Jesus enables us to hold these ideas together, that our God is serious about judging sin and will. But God is also the one who is full of mercy and love and compassion and has poured that out to us in his son, Jesus. So sinful, guilty people that we are, we can know that we are loved, that we are cherished by God, that we are declared right by him. And all because of Jesus. That is the wonderful news, good news of the gospel that saves us and frees us. And that is something to give thanks for.